Welcome back. This is going to be quite different from my normal fare, and uh, I'll, I'll let you figure out why I read it. Assimilation and Racialism in 17th and 18th Century French Colonial Policy by Celia Belmesos. Uh, Plowing, when it is honored, has softened savage peoples. There's a quote by Fenelon, who was uh, Dialogues des Morts Composés pour l'Education d'un Prince. Uh, Paris, 1718. Uh, probably butchering that. I can understand French much better than I can read it or pronounce it myself. Uh, although the idea of race is increasingly being historicized, its emergence in the context of French colonization remains shadowy. This is despite the fact that colonization was central to the emergence of race in French culture. The French are either credited with a generous vision and treatment of the Amerindians, uh, or they are kept in limbo. The publication of Richard White's Middle Ground in 1991 shook up these conventional ideas by showing that French conciliation toward indigenous peoples had to be explained by particular political and economic factors rather than by national character. Yet this issue of race has remained almost untouched. And French America has still not taken its place in the current debate about race, color, and civility. The present essay is an empirical contribution to the discussion on the origins of European racialism as applied to colonial situations. It argues that racial prejudice in colonial Canada emerged only after an assimilationist approach had been tried for almost a century and had failed. In the 17th century, French policy towards the indigenous peoples of New France relied on the assimilation of the natives to French religion and culture. The aim was to mix colonial and native peoples in order to strengthen the nascent New France. This policy of Francicization, sometimes translated as Frenchification, was based on a paternalistic vision of cultural difference. The French officials viewed the Amerindians as savages, uh, socially, economically, and culturally inferior to the Europeans. As such, they had to be educated and brought to civility. This policy remained the official native policy employed throughout the French of uh, the period of the French regime in Canada, despite the internal tensions and contradictions displayed by French officials. Historians have traditionally emphasized the implementation of this policy by missionaries, and consequently have neglected or at best diminished the significance of Francization uh, uh, for uh, civil authorities. The conversion of Amerindians to Christianity was undoubtedly an important part of the policy of Francization, uh, but that importance has been overstated. Francization was more a political program than a religious one. An understanding of the central role played by the state in the promotion of the policy of assimilation uh, has profound consequences for our comprehension of the relations between the French and the Amerindians. Moreover, it is necessary to understand the civil basis of the policy of assimilation to discern the consequences for the civil government's recognition in the 18th century that the policy had failed. The awareness of this failure was a crucial step from the perception of native peoples in terms of a cultural prejudice to a perception by the civil government of Amerindians through racial prejudice. The history of the civil authorities' experiments and failures with assimilation is therefore 
no less than the history of inclusion of race in the language of French colonial government policy. Familiarity with mostly well-known and oft often quoted sources from the Correspondence Generale, uh, the Series C of the Archives des Colonies, the sources of civil government, especially has prevented scholars from questioning the significance of those sources over the issue of race. Indeed, familiarity seems to have engendered tediousness and reluctance to go beyond what these sources have already told us, or seem to have told us, about related or different issues. Yet these sources still have a lot to say about the significance of Francization and its racial outcomes. It is mainly through the major issue of metissage, or miscegenation, interethnic cohabitation and intermarriage, that I will examine this question. Although I am well aware that much can be said about hybridity in general, about hybrid places, artifacts, peoples, practices, and languages, this essay will nonetheless focus on mixing, neighboring, and coupling. Mixed neighboring and coupling, excuse me. Other related and important issues such as intermarriage and the reconstruction of gender relations, miscegenation in the peripheral French settlements, the colonial experience of native peoples, the involvement of the church in Francization, and the significance of West African slavery in the construction of racial boundaries in French America, as well as in France, are addressed even if they are not my focus. Attitudes to miscegenation in the heart of New France inform us of officials' openness or anxiety toward natives. Indeed, the choice of whether or not to mix with the indigenous peoples was a choice of inclusion or exclusion, and the first consequence of the emergence of racial prejudice in Canada was a dread of mixed descendants. It is true that in the 19th and 20th centuries on the North American continent, miscegenation was encouraged as a means of eliminating Native Americans, and this policy was partly motivated by racial prejudice. This later period of officially sanctioned miscegenation was underpinned by the overwhelming numerical domination of European Americans over indigenous Americans. It was confidently predicted that Amerindian blood would be diluted to the point of disappearance in European blood. The contrast with this later period underlines one of the most striking features of the policy of miscegenation in 17th century New France. The French colonizers were a very small minority of the population of the territory over which they claimed sovereignty and they were overwhelmingly numerically dominated by Native Americans. In this context, the policy of miscegenation also reflects great confidence, the confidence of cultural paternalism, the belief that Native Americans would assume European ways once exposed to European culture. Importantly, however, the context of this policy seems to indicate the absence of an idea of race. That is, despite their numerical inferiority, the French had no fear that they could be biologically overwhelmed. On the contrary, miscegenation was seen as a means of strengthening the colony demographically, economically, and militarily. Although historians and post-colonial theorists have often stressed that racial prejudice was the result of colonial exploitation, I shall argue by contrast that uh, in 18th century Canada, the failure of the policy of assimilating the indigenous peoples was a catalyst in the emergence of the idea of race. As such, in this essay, I am largely concerned with people who had no concept of race. 
Moreover, the development of racial assumptions should not be equated to racism. Scholars have been sometimes too quick to describe French official statements about intermarriage as racist, whereas we can find only the emergence of some of the assumptions of the idea of race in 18th century French colonial policy. Because the idea of race is a sensitive issue, hotly debated among scholars, anyone conducting a, legal, a local study on the foundations of racialization needs to avoid the uh, pitfalls relating to the larger origins debate. While it is largely accepted that race is a historical phenomenon constructed by Europeans, differences still exist over what was characteristic of the idea and when it first emerged. The idea of race with which I am concerned is scientific and was articulated in 18th century and particularly 19th century scientific discourse. The scientific disciplines emerging from the Enlightenment search for an explanation for differences between human societies that lay in nature rather than culture. This was the discovery of race. Of central concern to this enterprise was the identification of physical and mental differences between humans of different groups. A number of studies have recently demonstrated the emergence of race in discourses of physical differences in colonial America, focusing particularly on the experience of southern colonies. The language of physical difference can be shown to have emerged in the colonization of New France in a fashion comparable to the English colonies. French officials identified a few bodily differences between Europeans and natives. They praised the height of native men, their good posture, their strength, their endurance, and their agility. The French also believed the Amerindians to have an inextinguishable thirst for alcohol, which they struggled to explain. Uh, what meanings were ascribed to these physical differences? According to French officials, hardships imposed by nature gave the native body virtues that the comforts of technology had denied the European body. By contrast, indigenous primitive technology did not prepare the native body for European products such as alcohol. Thus, physical differences was at first difference was at first uh, attributed to environmental difference and not to intrinsic qualities. Prior to and necessary to the development of discourses of physical differences, was the development of a discourse that explained difference through immutable nature. At the heart of the scientific language of race is the idea that groups of humans possess different natures. In the 16th and 17th centuries, French colonizers assumed that the differences between them and the Amerindian societies were cultural. By the 18th century, they concluded that differences were in nature. This assumption of a different nature uh, was a fundamental premise for the scientific idea of race. Natural difference between humans could, of course, be then subjected, subjected to scientific, uh, subject to scientific scrutiny, and from that scrutiny would emerge arguments about different physical characteristics and different temperaments. The colonization of New France, first entrusted to a few great financiers and merchants, often Huguenots or uh, foreigners living in New France, uh, developed rapidly into an essentially economic enterprise to the detriment of the population and development of the colony. Policies regarding native peoples were nevertheless officially portrayed in terms of religious aims, which legitimized the French enterprise and demanded its successful prosecution. It was only when a serious uh, effort at settlement was made along the St. Lawrence River after 1632 
that the Christianization of the natives became a genuine concern rather than merely royal rhetoric. The installation of French dwellings and continental extension of fur trade inspired an attempt to integrate the natives and provide them with a role within the confines of the French settlements. The uh, sending of missionaries overseas enabled both this problem to be addressed and the protection of civil society threatened by the surrounding savagery. Despite these practical motives, uh, in a period of post-Tridentine, uh, sorry, post-Tridentine uh, spiritual revival, it is probable that the French colonial administration sincerely sought the conversion of the American peoples. As early as 1603, the founder of Quebec, uh, Samuel de Champlain, deemed that the assimilation of Amerindians was a necessary means of increasing the colonial population. Uh, Champlain uh, reportedly promised the Ottawas and the Hurons uh, that when the French were established, our young men will marry your daughters and we shall be one people. Indeed, the demographic development of the colony was extremely slow and irregular compared to that of the French colonies. Following the mercantilist argument that a country's power depended on the size of its population, the French crown never strongly sustained the peopling of Canada for fear of weakening the kingdom. In, six, in other words, they didn't want to send people from France to the colonies because it would weaken France. They'd rather absorb people into the new France colonies. And where did those people come from? Native Americans. Secretary of State Jean-Baptiste Colbert uh, expressed Louis XIV's view that it would not be wise to depopulate his kingdom in order to populate Canada. The king wanted to maintain his own population, which was already, though wrongly, perceived as weak, to support his claim for a preeminent position in Europe. As opposed to England, the French crown did not believe that it had people to spare. The Thirty Years' War from 1618 to 1648 had been a drain on its population. Nor did it try at the time to get rid of marginal groups, whether they were religious or social. The policy of grandeur as understood by the crown, demanded France's expansion through colonization without compromising the kingdom's claims for preeminence in Europe. French reluctance to send emigrants to Canada, therefore, gave a distinct feature to the colony. Canada's population was to be generated through the miscegenation of a small group of settlers with natives. In 1666, Colbert argued that to increase the colony, it seems to me that instead of waiting to benefit from the new settlers who could be sent from France, uh, the most useful way to achieve it would be to try to civilize the Algonquins, the Hurons, and other savages who have embraced Christianity, and to persuade them to come settle in a commune with uh, the French, uh, to live with them, and educate their children in our mores and our customs. The successful settlement of the colony demanded that Amerindians had to be involved in the French colonial project. Without them, the French settlers could not overcome their small numbers to create a colonial society. Without them, the colony could not extend the fur trade, which was its main economic activity, nor could it defend its settlements and guarantee its military security. 
Without them, the settlers could barely feed themselves and adapt to their new environment. To remedy these difficulties, Amerindians were asked to participate in colonial growth as agents of demographic reproduction, instruments of economic development, and warriors. Amerindians' inclusion in the French colonial project as key actors rather than passive and exploited instruments indicates not only the general strength of Native peoples in the nascent colony, but also the absence of an idea of race in the eyes of French officials. Uh, Cultural tradition represented Amerindians as savage people, meaning unfinished people who had to be humanized. To achieve this goal, Christians had the moral duty to bring them faith and reason. According to lawyer and propagandist Marc Lescarbot, who went to Canada with Champlain at the beginning of the 17th century, the dispossession of Amerindians could not be challenged for two reasons. First, because indigenous peoples had shown their inability to improve the land, and second, because they were not Christians. Therefore, the spiritual responsibility in which the Europeans genuinely believed legitimized expansion as well as colonization. French originally founded its colonial titles on natives' lack of religion, and consequently on its evangelical duty. In the 17th century, uh, necessity intensified the French officials' belief that natives could be civilized into thinking that they had to be Francises. Intermarriage and interethnic cohabitation were all the more appropriate in that they brought together populations whose social conditions were similar. Common settlers, I'm not going to try to pronounce that, 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 we've hit my limit with the too many R's, and Amerindians were seen as common people too. There are, at first sight, no risk of misalliance. And if French noblemen did marry Amerindian women, it happened rarely enough not to put into question the policy of intermarrying. Although it had been argued that the white skin color of Amerindians facilitated the promotion of assimilation, no convincing evidence has been provided to show that 17th century French officials discussed this uh, issue. Culture, and not physical difference, was the central point according to which Amerindians were perceived in the 17th century. When scholars awkwardly translate French statements on assimilation, replacing the word uh, people with nation and race, they have further clouded the question. In 17th century France, French, nation, meant all the people of a certain country, whereas race meant lineage. Even if the idea of race conveying an ideology of inborn differences It was an ideology that explained uh, difference based on social uh, inequality and not biological characteristics. When Colbert famously encouraged French settlers to end native peoples to constitute one people and one blood, his probable meaning was creating a commonwealth through intermarriage. Although it has been argued that in 1684, Francois Bernier uh, first introduced in France the word race, with its contemporary significance. Recent scholarship has shown that such a meaning was clearly not apparent before 1749, when uh, Georges Buffon uh, published his Histoire naturelle des l'homme, that is, at the end of the period uh, with which we are concerned here. The reasons why miscegenation was successful or not were largely concerned with official policy, native agenda, and settlers' designs. From the early 17th century, The French used natives' assimilation to French customs and manners as an instrument of power. 
to dominate the Amerindians, the crown did not deem it necessary to resort to force for two reasons, to save money and paternalistically because it was convinced that a gentle approach would bring submission. As savages, the Amerindians had to be reduced to civil life and made to able to fulfill all the duties of an honest life, everyone according to the condition into which God had given him birth. Several factors were perceived to favor the conversion of natives. Material conditions, demographic, economic, and military. Optimism as to the malleability of their characters. Confidence in the power of education. And a cultural assumption that all peoples move from savagery to civility, placing them at an early stage of an inevitable historical development. Accordingly, Amerindians could, with the help of their new master, improve their condition so that they could fulfill their potential as humans. The conversion of natives into French people had to follow three stages. Because civility was a precondition to conversion, the Amerindians had to, first had to be Francises. The understanding of what constituted French national identity at a time when cultural and social diversities were great is not entirely clear. The conversion of natives into French people had to follow three stages. Because civility was a precondition to conversion, uh, the Amerindians first had to be Francises. The understanding of what constituted French national identity at a time when cultural and social diversities were great is not entirely clear. Nevertheless, French officials used the term Franciser and Francisation to describe the process of assimilation. Indeed, it was part through the contrast of European self and New World other that the language of national identity would crystallize. Amerindians were encouraged to settle and farm the land, to grow wheat and hemp instead of corn, and to raise cows, chickens, and pigs. They were also required to submit to French laws and adopt French language and customs. French-type clothes, food, trades, occupations, and housing fitting their houses with French-type chimneys. French officials never wrote a coherent program clarifying what should be done to assimilate the Amerindians, but they did agree that this process had to meet the needs of the colony as much as possible. Intendant Jacques Jacques Duchesnan, the colony's chief administrator from 1675 to 1682, wanted to keep native wanted native men to keep their traditional clothes and diet so that they would not become effeminate and they would be fitter and less constrained for the hunt, which makes their wealth uh, and ours. An aim that was not entirely consistent with the desire to keep settled forms of agriculture, desire to develop settled forms of agriculture. In an attempt to develop the colonial economy, uh, Duchesnau's, uh, like I said, I don't, I don't speak French, but I can often parse it, um, successor promoted the uh, teaching and spinning uh, and sewing. In an attempt to develop uh, the colonial economy, Duchesnau, uh, successor promoted the teaching of spinning and sewing to native girls so that they would be able to work in the industries that would be established in Canada. As pagans, Amerindians then had to be Christianized. And remember pagan here it means anybody who's not Christian. It doesn't doesn't they weren't actually like European pagans. Uh, in 1627, Armand-Jean Duplessis, uh, Cardinal de Richelieu, uh, granted to the Amerindian neophytes the automatic status of French subjects without restriction or of privileges. Uh, through baptism, indigenous peoples 
would then return to life as both Christian and French. The granting of French citizenship allowed the cardinal skillfully to deal with two political blows. The first against the Amerindians themselves, as they were told that their submission to Christian law was inseparable from their subjection to the colonizer's law. In other words, Christianization legitimized usurpation by revoking native title over the land. The second blow was aimed at the rival colonial powers that were thereby deemed uh, denied any claim to lands inhabited by French natives. Once made French and Christian, natives would be mixed with the settlers. Three concrete measurements were adopted to advance miscegenation. First, from the beginning of the 17th century, French officials encouraged native uh, initiatives to migrate in the St. Lawrence Valley so that the Amerindians could easily observe the French and, by good example, imitate their way of life. Political motivations influenced this decision. Indeed, French authorities aimed at obtaining the obedience of indigenous hunters and warriors, vital for colonial development, as well as ensuring a uniform social frame for everybody, settlers, and natives. Even if uh, colonial authorities had little control over native migrations and settlements, 17th century officials acknowledged the strategic benefit brought by native villages to the defense of the colony, regarding native warriors to be generally faithful allies. This cohabitation, however, had to be limited. The number of Amerindians welcomed among the French dwellings had to be less than the size of the colonial population to preserve the settlers' dominance of their indigenous neighbors. As the second measure to advance assimilation, the French authorities strongly uh, encouraged the education of native children to secure the conversion of the next generation. In 1668, Louis XIV invited the religious orders to pursue the comprehensive instruction in French customs for children initiated a few decades earlier. That was the only way to constitute just one people. More schools for native children were therefore opened in Quebec and Montreal uh, to promote the royal desire. As this measure was still insufficient to give the modesty of the public funds uh, compared with the enormous number of children who had to uh, be educated, French officials encouraged religious congregations and wealthy settlers to receive Amerindian children into their homes and raise them. Colonial authorities strongly encouraged their native allies to send their daughters to the Ursuline convent. Once Christianized and educated, these girls would be married to settlers and would establish Catholic families instead of going back to their villages to marry infidel native men. French officials also thought that intermarriage within Christian practice would prevent Frenchmen from falling into savagery, as they had in Brazil about 50 years earlier. Well, what happens in Brazil stays in Brazil. A royal fund to endow the assimilated native girls was set up in 1680 to facilitate the project. Although it was never clearly stated that the intermarriage should concern only native women with male settlers, French secular and religious authorities never encouraged or even mentioned the possibility of French women marrying native men, and the teaching of Amerindian girls was strongly encouraged for this very reason. Demographic as well as cultural, political, and economic reasons could be given to understand the kind of intermarriage promoted. First, the lack of nubile French females in the colony aggravated by demographic weakness partly explains official attitudes. Between 1608 and 1699, only 1,772 women, nuns accepted, 
emigrated to Canada, as compared with 12,621 men. The sexual imbalance remained a feature of colonial society to the end of the century. A further basis for the policy of intermarriage lay in traditional European gender practices. When establishing New France, authorities tried to replicate metropolitan gender organization, which was patriarchal and patrilineal. By contrast, some native cultures, mainly Iroquoian, uh, had a matrilineal system, which for the Europeans testified to their savagery. Following their gender conventions, the French put the male at the head of the household. Greek philosophy, Roman law, and Christian doctrine had established the authority of the father over his wife and children. They formed a natural society governed by the father because he was believed to be the one who could best provide resources, look after the family's interests, and preserve its unity, and link it to the previous generations. The early modern conception of paternity assumed that the father alone transmitted his qualities to the children and established their legitimacy. That theory attributed to the father the dominant role in the procreation of the children. The mother, comparatively, had a minor role. She was thought to catch her husband's semen and transmit the paternal qualities to the child without passing on anything herself. The mother cared for the child's body, whereas the father was responsible for the care of the soul. He had the sacred duty to educate his sons in particular. Got to turn on the light because the sun went down. This conception of paternity was exalted by the Catholic Church in the 17th century, the, and the Catechism of the Council of Trent clearly presented the father as the priest's intermediary. Given that children belong to the father, one can better understand why French officials promoted the union of Frenchmen with Amerindian women, and not the reverse. Such unions provided the only promise of creating French families and the security that their children would be integrated into the colonial community. Miscegenation was not only a colonial strategy of peopling based on metropolitan gender order, it was also conceived as an instrument of empire. The imperial and commercial designs of the French included promotion of intermixing, therefore the use of sex, as a means to develop the fur trade and consolidate French Amerindian relations. According to indigenous customs, French native alliance rested on economic, political, cultural, and social bonds. Intermarriage helped strengthen trading ties, which would in turn uh, reinforce political and military bonds. Although it has been recently argued that the late 18th century British commentators promoted intermarriage as a way to legitimize usurpation through the transmission of property rights to children of mixed unions, this observation cannot be generalized to the French experience. Uh, in the 16th century, the French established their colonial titles on session, notably the, through Christianization and native uh, acquisition of French citizenship and conquest of non-Christian lands in the 17th and 18th centuries. Native stateless societies, European states were also very weak, and supposed nomadism justified the seizure of land that had not yet been claimed by other European nations. The first shift from the initial policy of intermarriage occurred in 1682 when the Intendant de Moelles, uh, in charge from 1682 to 1686, criticized the endowment of native girls. He believed it was a useless expenditure, for there is hardly one or two who marry each year. Statistical evidence concerning intermarriage has always been difficult to obtain. And, no, and the numbers are not reliable, because mixed unions were commonly celebrated a la façon du pays, that is, 
according to indigenous customs and without consulting the civilian and religious authorities. According to De Muels, native women who were assimilated had to be encouraged to marry native men. With this argument, De Muels did not reject French native marriages, rather he criticized the position according to which intermarriage was the main way to accomplish Francization. Because that policy had had few concrete results, another needed to be adopted. Accordingly, uh, De Muels promoted the endowment of native women in kind rather than in money, proposing to give them a pig, wheat, and a few hemp seeds. These women would assimilate their husbands uh, by daily confronting them with another way of life. Being brought up in the spirit, I did not doubt that once married to savage men, they would gradually introduce their husbands to this way of life, which could then lead them to dress, eat, and live like us, and would, with time, get the savage mind out of them. DeMille's project was, therefore, to use Native women to educate Native men who, given their role as hunters, were the most inclined to a nomadic life. In this respect, Demols uh, echoed the concern expressed by Father Paul Lejeune, uh, S.J., almost 50 years earlier when he was trying to Christianize uh, Amerindian boys. According to Lejeune, Native girls had to be securely evangelized to provide Christian wives for Native men. Uh, Native women were targeted for moral as well as social reasons. The corruption of women was believed to reflect a greater corruption of the natural order. Uh, therefore, establishing civility within uh, indigenous societies had to be achieved through women. Assimilated women would pass on a culture based on French uh, civility to their husbands and children, a culture promoting male authority, controlled sexuality, and stable married households. To achieve native assimilation, French officials could not rely on missionaries' enthusiasm. Religious orders, despite being officially in charge of Francization, found it difficult to apply a policy they had stopped believing in almost 20 years earlier. Indeed, in the first half of the 17th century, recollects uh, Jesuits and Sulpicians had all experimented with Francization, thinking that indigenous peoples first had to adopt French laws and mores before being converted to Christianity. This civil evangelism did not succeed, however. Very few native children came to Christian schools, and those who did ran away when possible, their parents often interfered. Moreover, these children could not promote French culture and Christianity once back among their people because they had no influence. At the end of the 1630s, the Jesuits had already turned their back on inter-ethnic living, arguing that the French settlers were undermining their evangelical work by their scandalous behavior and brandy trade. They gradually moved all their missions and isolated them from the colonial settlements. After 1640, the Jesuits abandoned Francization as well for the reasons that it was unnecessary for a conversion. They no longer believed that native cultures and societies uh, were an obstacle to conversion, and when they tried to translate the Christian message to native languages, uh, they tried as well to find a compromise between Christian principles and native customs. This new program was undoubtedly contrary to the state's policy toward indigenous peoples, and in the second half of the 17th century, continuous conflicts uh, opposed colonial authorities to the Jesuit order. Since this policy had already been unsuccessfully pursued, uh, why did the state continue to promote it so strongly? The various motivations we have already seen uh, justified official interest and involvement, and the clergy, clergy's incompetence was held responsible for the failure of the experiments. 
What did indigenous peoples think about miscegenation as promoted by the French? It is generally agreed that they welcomed it as it strengthened existing alliances. In Acadia, the French settled on inhabited lands with the approval of native community. Amerindians happily welcomed the tiny European population because its size did not threaten them. Besides, they could trade with the French and acquire European goods without having to travel far. French settlements in the vicinity of the Huron and Algonquin tribes and later in the West were also welcomed. The French presence was always small and it allowed for the establishment of close economic, military, and personal ties. Except for the Iroquois, even those settled in the midst of the colonial towns who were reluctant to marry Europeans, uh, native peoples generally advocated intermarriage uh, and women chose to marry Frenchmen with their family's approval. For Great Lakes communities, intermarriage could secure a regular supply of European merchandise by encouraging traders to return to their wise village and increasing the traders' generosity towards native kinfolk. Uh, native women may have married French traders because of sexual imbalances and possibly to avoid sorrel polygamy, which uh, both of which were prevalent in Great Lakes societies. Through intermarriage, native women became intermediaries between their world and that of their husbands and thereby enhanced prestige and authority over their people. Uh, native women served as guides, interpreters, diplomatic envoys, and spies. They transferred their husbands' property to their families, and they firmly established military and trade ties between kin families. French settlers had mixed feelings concerning miscegenation. They welcomed Amerindian visitors in their towns, for economic reasons at least, they happily traded brandy, usually illegally, and were glad to get furs in exchange. If the habitants, farmers, were generally not interested in marrying native women, the Coras de Bois, the settlers involved in the fur trade, found it very advantageous. Native wives provided access to their kin trading networks as well as food and information. They could also help their husbands uh, in their work by treating and repairing the furs walking as far as and as long as needed, uh, farming the land, and generally enduring the hardships of a trader's life. In 1686, uh, Governor General uh, Jacques-Ren de Brisse de Denonville, in office from 1685 to 1689, uh, advocated the first definite move away from inter-ethnic cohabitation, arguing that although for a long time it was believed that domiciling the savages near our dwellings was likely to accustom them to live like us, I realize, Monsignor, that the very opposite has happened because instead of becoming familiar with our laws, they communicate to us all they have that is the very worst, and they take on likewise all that is bad and vicious in us. According to Denonville, uh, French native cohabitation presented the seduction of indigenous lifestyle to transplanted Frenchmen instead of bringing savage men to civil society. As Denonville uh, believed that living together had very harmful sociocultural effects, he wanted the two groups to be separated to protect colonial youth from the Amerindians, whose acculturation seemed to him far lower than that of the settlers. The segregation required that colonial authorities gather non-Christian natives living in the vicinity of Montreal inside villages. Denonville also encouraged uh, the further establishment of Jesuit reservations. When criticizing miscegenation, 
Denonville was articulating more strongly a doubt already expressed by his predecessors concerning the way it was pursued rather than really calling into question Francization. Denonville supported native evangelization despite, he believed, their reluctance to convert and the Iroquois rejection of Christian proselytism. Uh, he estimated that the French had to subdue their allies militarily to force them to listen more carefully to the missionaries. They also had to conquer the Iroquois who had supposedly martyred missionaries in the past and who were still slowing down the evangelization of allied tribes with their continual wars. At the end of the 17th century, colonial authorities started expressing serious doubts concerning the assimilation of the Amerindians. If earlier a few officials admitted that the policy was difficult to put into practice, they still thought that its achievement was possible with patience, encouragement, and means. Their doubts may have been more serious, but if so, they were wise to keep them private to not disappoint Colbert, who was very committed to Francization. Commenting on his private involvement in the education of native children, Intendant Jacques uh, Duchesneau uh, confessed that it is very difficult to tame them. Three have already left me after I dressed them very well. To account for his failure, the intendant commented that the savage mood of these children demanded a great deal of softness and patience on his part. If uh, Duchesneau still thought that he had to be uh, determined in his efforts, Intendant Jean Beauchard de Champigny in office 1686-1702 did not show any hope 19 years later. The difficulty in civilizing remote nations revealed uh, by the example we have that almost none of the savages educated among us chose to stay is a certain prejudice showing that we will not succeed, and it happens more commonly that a Frenchman becomes savage than that a savage becomes a Frenchman. Agreeing with the intendant, other French officials began to state the futility of attempting to civilize natives. They ceased using the word Francization, a sign that this policy had been abandoned. Why did Francization fail? Amerindians uh, appropriated many material goods and a few military and economic practices, but rejected French language, customs, and laws. They did not feel inferior to French, to the French, nor did they believe that their sociocultural practices were inferior to those of the French. It has been argued that a successful assimilative policy relies on three essential factors, namely the numerical inferiority of the nation to be absorbed, a weak consciousness of native identity, and the willingness of the natives to be assimilated. Lacking these conditions, colonial authorities needed to dominate the natives politically, militarily, and technologically. They also needed the support of a strong colonial population to achieve their goals. Yet none of these conditions was present in French Canada. Official disappointment with the attempts to assimilate the natives had several concrete results. First, the emphasis shifted to the Christianization of natives, since it could supposedly extend French influence. French officials thought that if they, that they could dominate those natives who were subject to the guidance of missionaries as spiritual advisors. Second, the budget dedicated to endow Catholic native women was annulled in 1702. Intermarriage was, of course, was no longer encouraged, even if it was not yet banned. Uh, official disillusion with intermarriage was partly due to the way the Coureurs de Bois used it to defile the colonial order. These men were often illegal traders who not only challenged trade monopolies, but also disobeyed diplomatic order by entering the English colonies. Colonial authorities kept complaining about the Coureurs de Bois uh, for 
these reasons and because these young men were living for several years at a time among indigenous peoples outside, uh, almost outside French societal and religious frames. Official attempts to regulate the fur trade and prevent more and more Frenchmen from being involved in the trade all failed. And in 1696, Western trading posts were abandoned and traders ordered to return to the heart of the colony. Neither general amnesty nor death threats convinced traders uh, to give up their lucrative commerce. To maintain their activity and remain safely in the West despite the official ban, the Cores de Bois used intermarriage as a way to establish personal relations with the Indians. When Western posts reopened in the 18th century, officializing the expansion of the fur trade, intermarriage exploded. Between 1698 and 1765, 48% of recorded marriages uh, at uh, Michel Mackinac, the most important Western post of Canada, were mixed marriages. Frenchmen with Amerindian Métis women. The debate about the issue of miscegenation reached its peak when the colony of Detroit was founded at the beginning of the 18th century. It not only it opposed not only two men, namely the founder of Detroit, Antoine Lamont Cadillac, and the governor general of uh, New France, Philippe de Rigaud de Vaudreau, uh, 1703 to 1725. Uh, but also opposed two visions, that of the 17th and that of the 18th centuries. The establishment of Detroit started badly, uh, as few colonists, very few colonists agreed to settle in that region. Uh, Lamont Cadillac then uh, followed the example of Champlain and advocated integration of the numerous indigenous people into the French colony. Once again, this integration had to be pursued through assimilation, which was in turn inseparable from cohabitation with the French. Although a now skeptical French crown, Cadillac also argued that Francization was the only way to civilize the natives and dominate them in a region where the French presence was almost non-existent. Intermarriage was also a part of Cadillac's project of settling Detroit. Uh, Frenchmen could only marry native women who were converted to Catholicism and French speaking. In other words, women who had virtually assimilated. Cadillac's idea of miscegenation consistent with the original policy of French authorities was not motivated by recognition and acceptance of native culture, but rather by the desire to erase it and to, uh, substitute a European society. On a practical level, Cadillac hoped that intermarriage would strengthen alliances and promote peace. It could be argued that for Cadillac, who was an opportunistic man, miscegenation was merely the rhetoric of his project. He cynically used the policy of Francization to give more power to his proposal the project was no less serious, however, for its rhetoric. Indeed, cynicism reveals the boundaries of what constitutes a legitimate political argument. Clearly, Cadillac judged uh, that the policy of Francization would continue to have a place in French politics and correspondingly would be a moral force. The minister of the Martins, Marines reply to Cadillac's proposal was quick and reflected growing royal indifference or even disagreement with the, even disenchantment uh, concerning Francization. Every aspect of the project was refused with the exception of intermarriage. This was in the end the only important issue in a region where Frenchmen could barely find partners outside of the indigenous world. The practice of intermarrying, of marrying native women a la façon du pays, which was uh, strongly condemned by colonial authorities, was almost the norm. With the persistent lack of French women in Detroit, Cadillac occasionally had to ask his minister's approval of intermarriages, which were forbidden by the general, Governor General uh, Vaudreau. What mattered then was no longer the question of miscegenation, 
but simply the necessity of finding a woman for every soldier and settler. Following the change in these attitudes, Native women would be sought solely for their sexual function. The Crown allegedly allowed these unions uh, on the condition that it does not force the Frenchmen to stay with the savages, which would cause a loss of men in wartime. Determined to make a decision on the issue so controversial in the colony, uh, Secretary of State Jérôme Philippot de Pontchartrain uh, invited Governor Vaudreuil to justify his hostility to these marriages. Vaudreuil uh, first argued that intermarriage had resulted in the creation of divisions among the French. As husbands were integrated into their wives' clan, they were necessarily involved in intertribal feuds. This created two problems. They would be pitted against each other, and they could involve French authorities in tribal disputes. More importantly, he claimed that one should never mingle a bad blood with a good blood. A good one. Uh, our uh, experience in this country shows that the French who married savage women have become dissolute, idle, and have an unbearable independence. And their children are as lazy as the savages themselves. This must prevent us uh, from permitting such marriages. Every child from these unions seems to try constantly to do a lot of harm to the French. Thus, the consequence of intermarriage was not only the acculturation of the French spouse to the detriment of his own culture, but the loss of the children to their native mother's clan. Uh, pessimistic and distrustful, Vaugel, uh claimed that he felt hostility from the offspring of mixed marriages towards French people. One might have thought that Vaudreuil's hostility to the Métis uh, was related to diplomatic problems encountered with Métis leaders. I have found no evidence, however, of such a link. On the contrary, French commanders continued to use Frenchmen uh, married to native women and their children, Métis légitimés, to maintain French influence among their allies and to secure loyalty in Onancho, um, the French governor general. Further, it has been shown that even if 18th century officials believed that intermarriage uh, meant assimilation of the father and children to native culture, numerous families were integrated into colonial society. Could Vaudreuil's harsh condemnation of miscegenation have been related to French diplomatic achievements at the beginning of the 18th century? Recent scholarship has shown that the French were the real winners of the Great Peace of Montreal that ended 50 years of Iroquois War. Uh, diplomatic success could have given the French more confidence toward their allies. It could also have provoked arrogance, but not pessimism. The pessimism Vaudreuil uh, expressed arose from a larger disillusionment that the Métis might be considered to be the colony's enemies tested, testified to the Europeans' cultural defeat, to their inability to supplant native culture. In 17th century France, the word Métis referred in a disparaging way to the children who were born of misalliances. Uh, these were unequal marriages, bringing the stain of an inferior blood into a good lineage. Baudrillard then employed the language of biological nature to stigmatize the idea of intermarriage. The blend of French and Amerindian blood was not healthy for the colony. He forbade these decadent unions in order to provide to protect his people from the disaster of moral corruption. Vaudreuil's condemnation of intermarriage must also be related to the French failure to assimilate the Amerindian women who were responsible for introducing bad blood. Even when they married Frenchmen, they chose to remain barbarous, indeed even dangerous, as they kept their sexual freedom divorced their husbands when they wanted to, and continued to observe their traditional values. 
yet their acceptance of European gender models was the prerequisite for their successful union with the Frenchmen. It might be argued that Vaudreuil's words against miscegenation could be placed into the pre-existent discourse of racist genealogy, but further analysis shows he was using a different ideological approach to the intermarriage issue. The contrast between 17th century and 18th century official statements on the intermarriage of uh, and the use of the words sang, blood, as in, as in sanguine, uh, or exsanguinate, uh, reveals this mutation. When Colbert advocated the creation of one people and one blood, the word blood meant kinship and lineage. Uh, the mixture of indigenous and settler bloods would create kinship and lineage between both peoples. By contrast, when Vaugeau condemned the mixing of blood, the word blood gained a biological meaning. A bad blood no longer meant just an inferior lineage. It had become more than that. It referred to an entire people. The expressions good blood and bad blood went beyond the complex problem of genealogy by referring to the biological nature of blood. The issue of good lineage changed dramatically when they started to be, there started to be confusion between the meanings of blood, between the biological meaning and the social blood, one. And the very confusion between the biological and the social is crucial to racial thinking. Furthermore, evidence found in other territories of New France also supports the proposal that Governor Vaugeau was using a new language of the intermarriage question. In 1715, the same year that Vaugeau condemned intermarriage, uh, Louisiana Administrator Jean-Baptiste Dubois, uh, Duclos de Montigny argued that intermarriage against intermarriage and wrote uh, in a similar way that experience shows uh, every day that the children that come from such marriages are of an extremely dark complexion, half-breeds who are naturally idlers, libertines, and even more rascals. Reference to color, absent under Vaugeau's pen, appeared in the debate in a slave colony. From Canada to Louisiana, New France was developing racialized ideas about the differences between the French and the Amerindians and the Africans in Louisiana and the French Caribbean. And one of the first expressions of racial categorization was the stigmatization of mixed descendants. The metropolitan reaction to racialized departments in the colonies was at first skeptical. Secretary of State Pontchartrain retorted uh, to Canada's officials that intermarriage contributed to the maintenance of peace with the natives and recommended that they authorize them. But Vaugeau's arguments against these unions eventually prevailed. When he became governor of Louisiana, Le Monde Cadillac banned intermarriage. Cadillac's change of mind could be explained by his own promotion. When he was responsible for daily relations with the natives, he supported intermarriage to secure uh, trading and military interests. Once charged with the growth of Louisiana, which was based on the establishment of slavery and therefore a different economic uh, relationship between the settlers and Africans than prevailed, uh, between settlers and Amerindians, he used racial categorizations to codify social relations between the French natives and Africans. Official po opposition toward uh, miscegenation and intermarriage in particular had several immediate expressions. In the West, colonial administrators restricted the rights of Amerindian widows to inherit their French husband's property. In 1722, the government of Canada prohibited the adoption of illegitimate French children by Amerindian families even by native families who were Catholic, and according to the earlier policy of assimilation, would have been defined as French. Although adoption was uncommon and illegal in early modern France, colonial officials perhaps tolerated it for the reason that it was impossible 
to remove the children from their native adoptee fam adoptive families given that French laws were not enforced in native villages. Uh, in 1717, Sieur de Linot, the Crown Attorney of Quebec, challenged this practice by arguing to the Conseil uh, de la Marine that adoption was all opposed to royal interests. Firstly, the intention of Her Majesty has always been to Frenchify Francisère, the savages, and to familiarize them with our customs and not to familiarize the French with savage customs. A further problem with the practice, Lena argued, was that it would allow the savages to increase their population, threatening the safety of the colony. It would also encourage uh, the French youth to fall into debauchery. The whites are brought up by the savages, are more alcoholic and vicious than the savages themselves. Lino's arguments, supported by color categorizations, prevailed, and in 1722, colonial authorities had to reissue the Edict of 1556 that threatened with death women who hid their pregnancy. Uh, given the colonial justice could not be applied to natives, this threat was the only means of preventing adoption. In spite, however, of official prohibition, uh, illegitimate French children were still given to native Christian families in the 1750s. Discouraging intermarriage did not inhibit the couriers de bois. The prevalence of intermarriage among them continued to put secular and religious authorities at odds throughout the 18th century, whereas officials condemned intermarriage but tolerated de facto relationships as they were considered temporary. Missionaries thought intermarriage helped combat moral disorder. The administrators complained that the missionaries thereby encouraged traders who were challenging royal power and a nascent colonial ideology based on racial categories. In 1735, the same year that Superior Council of Louisiana, which had ruled the Illinois country since 1717, issued a decree restricting intermarriage, the new secretary for the colonies, Jean-Frédéric Philippe de Maripot, uh, officially condemned intermarriage on the grounds that it was disgraceful for the French and perilous for the colony. Marriages between Frenchmen and savage women become frequent in the Illinois. Uh, such alliances are uh, dishonorable for the nation. They can have very dangerous consequences for the colony's tranquility, and children born from these unions are more libertine than the savages. Changing French attitudes to Amerindians show that intellectual discussion on the idea of civility and progress had no influence on policymakers. Important works like Montesquieu's De l'Esprit de l'Os, uh, Buffon's Histoire naturelle de l'Homme, and Jean-Jacques Rousseau's Discours sur la région uh, et les fondements de uh, l'inégalité parmi les hommes were published much too late to have any impact on French colonial policy. The shift in racial prejudice happened 20 years before Voltaire expressed his uh, uh, polygenist uh, considerations on humans and more than 40 years before Montesquieu, Rousseau, and others expressed their views on human nature. Even the highly regarded Histoire et Description Générale de la Neuville French by the Jesuit historian Pierre-Francois Javier de Charlevoix uh, was published too late to influence policymakers. Changing French attitudes towards Amerindians owed much to the very experience of colonization. French acceptance of colonial change derived from the influence of colonial administrators had on metropolitan minds and policies concerning the Amerindians. In the 18th century, the king and secretaries of the marine paid little attention to Canada 
other than for strategic purposes. Canada was a military fortress representing French imperialism, but also a wall that would stop British expansion. Uh, minister, the minister's interest, not to mention the king, rarely went further. Behind the deceiving prose conventionally used by royal and colonial governments that seemed to indicate that the crown was fully in charge of the colonial matters and initiatives, colonial officials were the real policymakers. In the Ministry of the Marine, the Premier Comi were responsible for summarizing all of the colonial correspondence and suggesting responses. After Colbert's death, these uh, Premier's Comis became a more important and became more important and the creation of the Bureau des Colonies, Office for the Colonies in 1710, reinforced their power by institutionalizing the bureaucracy responsible for colonial affairs. Premier's Comis knew, knew more about the colonies than the king and his ministers who usually followed their advice without question. Our knowledge of the Premier's Comis is unfortunately too insufficient to make specific statements about them. We can nonetheless assume that as years passed, they owed much of their understanding and visions of Amerindians to their colonial correspondence. Royal acceptance of colonial change often reveals the development of the idea of race inside the metropolis. Scholarship on French racial ideology has shown that racism emerged in the second half of the 18th century, partly because of the kingdom's increasing participation in the transatlantic slave trade and the increasing dependency on colonial products. By claiming Africans of inferiority, racist ideology justified their enslavement and legitimized slave society, which was contrary to French notions of freedom. Thus, racism in France was a compromise resolving the tendency, the tension, sorry, between colonial slavery and uh, France's pre-revolutionary principle of liberty, as much as it was the result of other colonial influences, notably relations with Amerindians and Africans. The expression of racialized ideas in New France in the beginning of the 18th century, that is almost 50 years before their appearance in the metropolis, uh, indicated that racial ideology first emerged in the colonies. In Canada, it was born out of the government's political failure to main create a uniform colonial society that would include natives and settlers. The ideological transformation that took place in the colonies would be a significant factor in the formation of the metropolitan attitudes. Uh, fully to understand the strong rejection of miscegenation in the 18th century, demographic, political, and economic developments need to be recalled. Canada overcame the failure of the founding demographic project, uh, the peopling of Canada by the descendants of French settlers and native women, through French immigration and especially natural population growth. Self-population growth and the development of the French colony diminished the interest that colonial authorities held for native people. Furthermore, the strengthening of the French-Algonquin alliance provided the French with slightly more freedom uh, from their desire to dominate their partners. The changed economic focus promoted by the end of the 17th century often encouragement of a more diverse economy based, on no longer, based no longer on the fur trade but on agriculture, commerce, and industry also contributed to changing official attitudes to the, Am to the Amerindians. Trade-based colonies generally needed close relations with the indigenous peoples to satisfy their economic goals, thus the need for miscegenation and intermarriage. Whereas farming settlements, even among the indigenous nations, such as Detroit, did not create the need for intermarriage. Once the government started challenging the centrality of trade in colonial activity, relations with natives changed as well. But of greater importance in the changing French vision of natives was the failure of assimilation policy. While a few indigenous groups like the Hurons and the Abenakis were effectively converted to Christianity, the failure of assimilation was beyond the beginning of the 18th century. 
or sorry, was beyond doubt by the beginning of the 18th century. It is surprising that considering that there are so many nations, there is still none who takes our manners. And even by among us and every day with the French, they still govern themselves the same way they did in the past. We would need infinite work and time to free those peoples and to be able to reduce them to take our ways and our customs. I assure you that this work will last several centuries. To explain native rejection of assimilation, colonial authorities employed by the idea of native uh, nature, whereas earlier they had denounced native culture. French uh, officers uh, adopted the opinion of earlier recollect and Jesuit missionaries, according to whom Amerindian nature could not submit to the fundamental principle of obedience contained in Christian and European societies. The French thought the Amerindians rejected the truth they were offered because of their independent nature, meaning their pride. The invocation of a perceived independent nature drew on the explanation of native behavior by nature. It was not the native's nature, but their moral code founded on the principle of individual liberty that hindered their acceptance of European codes. This emphasis on nature was, of course, crucial to the development of idea of race. Nature is marked by permanence. Nature confines every individual to attitudes and behaviors from which she or he cannot escape. The savagery of Amerindians uh, was now considered to be visceral. As a consequence, colonial uh, authorities' fear of the savages also increased. They believed that deep-rooted nature of their savagery would triumph over civilization, as the example of the Métis had supposedly made abundantly clear. The risk uh, posed by the uh, possibility that settlers could become savage was all the more serious given that the Amerindian progression was now deemed impossible. The fragility of European culture in a savage world led the authorities to limit the uh, interpenetrations between settlers and natives and to reject anything that resembled a transgression of their social and religious norms for fear of falling into inhumanity. Because the Amerindians could not become French subjects with the social recognition this transformation would have implied, French authorities tried to find a new policy that would allow them to deal with their allies without sacrificing uh, colonial interests. Indigenous reality was therefore pragmatically reconciled with French needs. Uh, Authorities would exploit what was exploitable. As most Amerindians practice hunting and war, These male activities were married with uh, colonial interests and were presented in the language of nature. Native bellicosity would come, especially during the Seven Years' War, to help the French against the British. Uh, As officer Louis uh, Antoine de Bougainville pointed out, without them the content uh, would be, the contest would be too unequal for us. French generals always pushed native warriors to be as violent as possible to frighten the British. They would later claim to have no power over their allies if they had to answer for their actions. When British authorities demanded that the French withdraw their support for the massacres perpetrated by their allies, French officials used native nature to justify themselves. The savages were naturally ferocious and nothing could be done or said to stop them from acting in such a barbarous way. In the 17th century, French officials tried to create a colonial society in North America that would include national settlers as well as indigenous peoples. This new France would be ethnically mixed but culturally French as Amerindians were encouraged to assimilate to French religion and civility. It was a time when French officials did not think that intermarrying native women with Frenchmen would corrupt French blood, nor would it dishonor the French nation. 
miscegenation was officially encouraged and financially funded. Despite French efforts, the policy was a total failure. Amerindians refused to assimilate, thus to integrate into French colonial society according to French terms. That failure provoked disillusionment and pessimism among French officials. Uh, political disillusionment had such a had a dramatic outcome, namely the racialization of Amerindians. Indeed, from the failure to include some, the natives in the colonial body uh, emerged a disposition to divide people, colonial and Amerindian, in terms of nature. At the beginning of the 18th century, French uh, administrators started articulating a new ideology that reconsidered the terms of membership in civil and political society. First, miscegenation was discouraged and intermarriage prohibited, at least discursively, for uh, political and biological reasons. The confusion of both terms was a crucial step in the construction of the new ideology. Second, native policy was now firmly grounded on exploitation. The construction of the savage was a hunter and a fierce warrior uh, legitimized natives' instrumentalization. Colonial context allowed the official expression of racialism. Uh, colonial development decreased the French dependency on natives through their military support, though their military support would remain vital. However, the increasing rivalry with British colonies made evangelization, which supposedly had a hold on the Amerindians, uh, all the more necessary. A local study on the emergence of racialism in Canada can tell us a lot about the colonial-metropolitan relationship. It shows that race was very much the fruit of colonialism. It arose directly out of the political experience of colonization. It seems the, that the first premise of racial theory, a difference between humans written in nature, has to be found in the colonies rather than in modern science. There are good reasons for placing the emergence of race in the context of post-enlightenment scientific discourse. 19th century science had theorized race and given it the form that it is recognizable today uh, and would not be recognizable to the pre-modern mind, namely an emphasis on natural and physical differences between humans that have been subjected to scientific analysis. It is clear, however, that the colonial experience rather than modern science that brought into practice the fundamental categories of race. This first and fundamental shift in human understanding later received the support of the rapidly emerging empirical sciences. The progressive theory of history, a beacon of the Enlightenment's universal optimism, was uh, destined to be confined within European boundaries, confined, that is, to European progress, even before it found its full expression. The pessimism of race moved into the void and was evident as, near, as early as 1709, when Governor Vaudreuil uh, argued one should never mingle a bad blood with a good one. Finally, it is striking to note the persistence of colonial ideas in different temporal and spatial spheres. From the 16th to the 20th century, Europeans strongly promoted the assimilation of indigenous peoples before becoming deeply disillusioned by their failure. In the 19th century, when colonizing Africa, French adopted assimilation on the basis of their colonial policy. As the basis of their colonial policy in Australia, English promoted a similar policy in their relations with the aboriginals. The idea of assimilation, far from emerging from the Enlightenment or the French Revolution as has been advanced, was very similar to that promoted uh, in the 17th century. That the idiom of Francization continued in French colonial history right down to the beginning of the 20th century does not mean that the shift of the early 18th century has been overstated. Rather, it shows that the French failure to assimilate Amerindians did not challenge the idea of assimilation. The assimilation had not failed, the Amerindians had. Their failure to improve did not uh, rebound on other peoples. 
nor did it question the relevance of assimilation as a political project. From a monogenist uh, views of humanity, from monogenist views of human, humankind emerged the idea that improvement was a moral duty for colonized peoples as well as a political responsibility for the Europeans. Therefore, assimilation was promoted in Africa as well as Australia. And as in Canada, it failed because Aboriginal peoples rejected it. These failures brought disillusionment and pessimism in European minds that did not question the prerequisites of that policy. That is, that native populations had to improve according to European terms. Undoubtedly, we could get a better sense of the reasons racialism emerged uh, if the ideas and policies that led to its construction could be diachronically understood. That is, the historical development of the idea of assimilation needs to be traced to provide a better historical framework for understanding the emergence of race. Therefore, a history of the idea of human improvement in the uh, long durée, whether we call it assimilation, francization, or something else, has to still be written. And so that's the end. Siliha Belmasus, uh, apologies if I mispronounced that, completed her PhD at the École de Études en Ciencias Sociales in Paris and now lives in Australia where she is a research associate in the Department of History at the University of Sydney. This article is the first stage of a book called Assimilation and Empire, which explores the history of assimilation in European colonial policies from the 16th to the 20th centuries. Thank you so much, Dr. Belmasus. I thank you for writing this article. Mm -hmm.